Good to see you this morning. We are wrapping up today our sermon series portion of it on David. Glad that you're here to be part of that. Um, We're skipping a lot. We have skipped a lot. There's lots more to be said about David. I can't believe that uh, there's parts of this story that I've left out. But this morning, I'm going to try to put some finishing touches on one of the greatest stories, I think, in all of Scripture, the life of David. And to do that, I want to begin with a story. A fellow takes a summertime job working at a grocery store. First day on the job, the uh, owner of the store comes in and hands him a broom, and he said, I want you to sweep the floor of the store. The young man's a little bit taken aback, a little bit defensive, and he said, excuse me, sir, do you realize that I'm a graduate student at the University of Miami? His boss said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. Here, give me the broom back. I'll show you how to do it. (laughs) Now, I want you to notice something as I tell these jokes, these bad jokes week after week. I'm sort of picking on a different school in the state, you know, every week. So eventually I'm going to offend everyone. But I use that joke to kind of get us thinking about expectations. You know, we think about expectations a lot. And in churches, we think about expectations and we talk about expectations And usually what we like to focus on is, what can I expect from God? And we like to think about that. I like to think about that. I like to talk about unconditional love. I like to think about unimaginable grace. I like to preach on those things. They're my favorite sermons. I love to preach on what we can expect from God. But somewhere along the line, shouldn't we be asking the question, what can God expect from me? Maybe, you know, carry that a little bit further. What should the church be able to expect from me? Now, I talk to a lot of people who who show up here, and they're kind of checking us out. I'm kind of trying to see what Bay Area is all about. I've talked to a lot of you when you were at one time kind of checking Bay Area out. And at some point in the conversation, the question is always asked in some form or another, what can I expect from the Bay Area Church of Christ? And it's a legitimate question, by the way. It's an obvious question. What should I be able to expect from this body of believers? But at some point, the question should be asked, what should this body of believers be able to expect from me? I mean, if you're a Christian, if you're a recipient of God's grace, should what should God's expectations be for you? Is it to show up every now and then when your week hadn't been too hectic? To give a little bit of money when you're feeling guilty, maybe generous. To volunteer for something that maybe won't interfere with the rest of your life. To know all the words to the songs. Memorize a couple scriptures. Kind of stay away from really public scandalous sin. Is that sort of all that God expects from us as Christians? God's expectation for you. God's expectation for me. It is to be 100% committed to him and to his son. And I want to be very clear about that. God's expectation for us is that we are wholly committed to God and to Jesus. That we are loving, serving, honoring God and Christ. That I'm placing my time, my life, my resources, my relationships, my choices, my work, my mind... My obedience, wholly at God's disposal. Our 
expectation that God has for us is that we are all in when it comes to Jesus. You know, we, we kind of get that in other things, right? I've never heard Dirk Cutter interviewed on, on a, before a game saying, well, I'm really hoping the Bucks go out there and you know give me a good 78% effort today. That wouldn't do. I never hear a boss say, what we expect is you know a half day's good work. That's not their expectation. I've never been at a wedding where a groom has said, I promise to love you, I promise to be faithful to you a pretty good chunk of the time. No, that wouldn't do, would it? In those situations, we expect 100% commitment. And yet I've seen people who've gone to church, sometimes for years, and they love to hear about grace, and they love to hear about love, love to talk about mercy, but they don't really want to hear any kind of expectation that would cause them to rethink their priorities, or sacrifice their time or effort, or or change their lifestyle, or or give up some sin. They don't want to hear that. By the way, I know some other people also who love to hear those kinds of sermons. Not that it causes them to change anything, just makes them feel better about uh, being judgmental. Um, But but here's the pretty simple truth. What God expects from us, in fact, what God demands from us, is 100% commitment to Him and to Jesus. And I want to kind of expound on this thought a little bit in the context of David as we wrap up some thoughts on David. And actually, here the last sermon in my David series, I want to introduce another king. And really just briefly to kind of for comparison's sake, but I want to introduce to you a king that probably you don't know very much about. In fact, I would suggest that probably most of you have never heard of this king, although he was king of Israel. Uh, His name is Amaziah. And I want to use his... uh, his uh, bio is a little bit of a comparison here. It's found in Second Chronicles chapter 25. By the way, Amaziah reigned over Judah about 200 years after David, so they don't overlap at all. But again, I want to kind of compare these two kings. Second Chronicles 25. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Jehoadan. She was from Jerusalem. And then notice what verse 2 says about this king Amaziah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. It's such an interesting phrase, such an interesting comment on Amaziah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. Today's English version says, he did what was pleasing to the Lord, but he did it reluctantly. And you get the image of someone who sort of punches the clock, kind of kept the rules, kind of checked the boxes, but his heart never was really in it. Which seems like such a sad way to go through life, right? Contrast that with a summary of statement of David. Actually, I went to the New Testament for this. In Acts 13, where the Apostle Paul is talking to people in Antioch, Pisidia. But God removed him, talking about King Saul. We've talked about this. But God removed Saul from the kingship and replaced him with David. A man about whom God said, David, son of Jesse, is a man after my own heart. We love that phrase about David. We love the fact that David's the only one in Scripture who is referred to as a man after God's own heart. But that's not all that God says about David. David, son of Jesse, is a man after my own heart, for he will do everything I want him to do. He's a man after my own heart. 
For he will do everything I want him to do. What a wonderful statement for God to make about David. But then it's a little bit confusing when you think about what we talked about last week, that David committed adultery. He had a man killed. He, he covered up that murder. He was a train wreck of a husband. Probably a worse father. But here's the deal. David's heart belonged to God. David's heart always belonged to God. His whole life is covered. His whole life is consumed with the story of God. And what drives David is this overwhelming desire to honor and please God. You know, he messes up time after time after time. But then he repents. And his overwhelming desire is to please and to honor his God. David is 100% committed to God. And the obvious question becomes, does God expect that same kind of commitment from me? And I'm not going to leave you hanging on that. The obvious answer is yes. Absolutely, that's what God expects from me. The better question to ask ourselves is, where exactly do I fall on that commitment scale? If that's God's expectation of me, just exactly how committed am I to God? Where do I stand? What does that look like? Let me make a couple quick application points this morning regarding this idea of wholehearted devotion. One, wholehearted commitment to God means that I serve others. It's not just about following the rules. It's not just about refusing to do things that I shouldn't. Wholehearted commitment to God means that I serve other people. I minister to other people. I think of others. It means I initiate some action that's going to help other people. You know, David is a young man. We talked about he comes across this, uh, he comes on the battle scene where Goliath is taunting the armies of Israel. Send somebody out to fight me. Nobody wants to go out and fight Goliath. But David remembers a God who was faithful to him when a lion and a bear attacked a sheep. And David is convinced that God will be faithful to me if I am if I go fight Goliath, then of course God is. And then, as a, as David becomes a powerful king, he volunteers at great expense to take care of, to care for a young man by the name of Mephibosheth. We haven't even talked about Mephibosheth. Wonderful story on grace. Mephibosheth was a son of Jonathan. Because of a vow that David made to Jonathan, David makes sure that Mephibosheth is uh, cared for. Then as a king living in a palace, David realizes that it doesn't make very good sense that he is living in splendor and God is being worshipped in a tent. And so David initiates the building of the temple. It's actually his son Solomon that does the actual building. But make no mistake, David made it happen. David did all the preparation. King Amaziah spent 29 years of his life doing what was right. But his heart wasn't in it. His heart was somewhere else. And when you read the story of King Amaziah, what you find is a king who is very ungrateful. You'll, you'll see a king who is greedy. You'll see a king who is really arrogant, which ends up getting him killed. You see a king who never does get the concept of putting other people first. Our expectation here at Bay Area, if you're checking us out, or if you're, uh, if you're a part of the family here, our expectation is that you'll serve somebody is that you'll be involved in some type of service. And I think that's what makes a church great. 
I think that's what makes a church exciting. When people say, I want to help, I want to serve, I've got some talents, I've got some time. I want to do something for someone else. I want to point people to Jesus by the things that I do, not just by the things that I don't do. And that's God's expectation. That's certainly what Jesus modeled. Second point. Wholehearted commitment to God means being passionately committed to worship. And boy, do you see this in the life of David. You know, we might struggle a little bit with the concept of passion. But passion sort of uh, takes on a lot of forms. People who are wholeheartedly committed to God are very, very serious. Very, very passionate about worshiping God. And again, you see it so plainly in the life of David. David is the king of Israel. He's the leader of the people. He's the leader of the military. He's got a lot of things going on in his life. He's a really busy guy. But he's never too busy that he doesn't stop and worship God. He's never too busy to carve out time. In fact, it it kind of defines David, his worship to God. And you see it so much in his writings. And I could have chosen one of dozens of psalms. I'll put Psalm Psalm 9 here on the screen. David writes, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I'll sing praise to your name, O Most High. That's not half-hearted devotion. No, what David did in his worship to God, he did it with all his heart, all the time. No, we didn't really talk about it, but you'll remember the time when David's returning the Ark of the Covenant to its rightful place. And we're told that he danced before the Lord with all his might. Stories found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. You're familiar with it. Afterward, when David went home to greet his family, Michael came out to meet him. Michael's his wife. The king of Israel made a big name for himself today, she said. He exposed himself like a fool in the sight of the servant girls of his officials. David answers his wife. I was dancing to honor the Lord who chose me instead of your father and his family to make me leader of the people of Israel. And I will go on dancing to honor the Lord. David was passionate about worship. David was serious about honoring God. He honored the Lord with all his might. He did it through dancing. He did it through writing. He did it through worship. Again, there's nothing half-hearted about the way David worships God. I don't want there to be anything half-hearted about the way I honor God, the way I worship God. I don't want there anything to be anything to be half-hearted about the way we honor God and the way we worship God. But it seems like sometimes we find ourselves worshiping a little bit more like Amaziah than David. I mean, we're here, and we kind of go through the motions, but our heart's not in it. I think we all probably know some CEO Christians, right? Christmas, Easter only. They kind of show up when it's convenient. David saw God as someone who was worthy of his daily worship. Well, everybody worships something. You worship something. I read a story from a guy named Kent Drummond who served as a paramedic and he talked about being called out to an apartment in one particular call. It was the apartment of a drug addict. He said this this fellow was just in terrible shape. Um, He was non-responsive. He was 
curled on the floor, shivering, near death. He said the, the apartment was just trashed, garbage everywhere. Um, no furniture, no food, no heat. And he talked about the fact that as, as frightening as that was, it was the first time in my life I really saw what true worship was. That this was a man who worshipped his addiction. To the point where nothing else mattered. That he was willing to sacrifice everything, even his life, for that addiction. That is the thing that he worshipped. You know, all of us worship something. The problem is, a lot of times, we're not exactly sure what it is we worship. But I've got an exercise for you this morning. A way to diagnose this commitment issue. Ask yourself this question. What do I get most irritated about? What do I get most anxious about when it's threatened? But just think about that for a minute. What is it that I get most anxious about if it gets threatened? What would I miss the most if it were taken away from me? Now, maybe it is an addiction, some substance. Maybe it's success. Or money. Or control. Or family. And a lot of people worship their family. Now, I know a lot of people who seem like they, they worship comfort. They would never say that, but it seems like they worship an easy chair and television. Because if that was ever threatened, oh, you would see a reaction. There's a deep-seated connection there with, you know, kind of living life in comfort. We all worship something. Now, one more thought on this point. Michael, David's wife, who gave him such a hard time about dancing before the Lord. You remember that Michael was the daughter of King Saul. Michael never grew up watching her dad dance mightily before the Lord. She never saw that from Saul. She didn't see that from her father. She grew up seeing half-hearted devotion. Very little repentance. She grew up with a father who had a way of rationalizing disobedience. So I'll say this to you parents. Your children need to see you committed to worship. And I'm not just talking about what we do here, but I'm not excluding what we do here. You need to be showing your children, teaching your children, modeling for your children how important you think worship to God is, because it is. You need to be teaching your children that. And I say that because I know how easy it is to get focused on everything else. Education, clubs, sports, relationships. And sometimes we get a little bit casual about what we're teaching our children about our worship to God. Last thought about commitment. Wholehearted commitment loves to be challenged. And that is so true. It is so telling. It's so obvious. If you are really committed to something, you love to be challenged. You know, you see that in teams. You, you see that in academics. You see that in the workplace. And I think it's true in churches. I think it's true spiritually. When someone is wholeheartedly committed to God, not out of guilt, not out of some sense of obligation, not out of some pressure that's been put on them, but when someone is convinced that God is worthy of my time, my effort, my worship, God is worthy of me going all in, they love to be challenged on that. To be called to it. To be renewed by it. To have that bar of expectation set really, really high. They love that. 
And they love challenging other people as well. Why don't you see what David says to his son Solomon about building the temple? David wanted to build it. God said, you've shed too much blood. But here's what David tells Solomon, his son. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father. That would be David. That would be Jehovah. Acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind thoughts. Boy, David knew that, didn't he? If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. I love how David first challenges Solomon to to wholehearted devotion. And then he challenges him to be strong and and do the work. For a devoted follower of Jesus to be challenged with Jesus stuff, with Jesus work, kind of fires him up. Kind of makes you say, yeah, I'm in. I want to be a part of this. That's my heart's desire, to be strong and do the work. And you think of Jesus' commitment to us. He left heaven, came to earth, died on the cross. For what? So we could live 29 years like King Amaziah or however much longer we have to to kind of do the right things but, but not have our heart in it? No. That's not why Jesus came. We only get one life to live. Jesus wants us to realize that the only thing worth living for is Him. His love. His redemption. Now, we love to hear about grace and healing and unconditional acceptance, God's love. I get it. I like to hear it. I like to preach about it. But I don't want just that for us. I don't want us to be the kind of people who just, just hunger for the messages about how God is totally committed to us and, and really no challenge to be committed to Him. I don't want to talk about God's 100% commitment to us and then give the impression that, that He expects anything less from His people. You know, I think that I've ended every one of these David sermons by saying, a thousand years later, <laughs> if you've been paying attention, this is number six, and for the sixth time I'll say, a thousand years later, and we end up in the New Testament with Jesus. And that's because so much of David's life really does point to Jesus. Well, a thousand years later, a thousand years after David was dancing mightily before the Lord, Jesus would tell a story about the kingdom of God. And here's the story that he tells in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went, sold all he had, and bought that field. That's wholehearted devotion. But notice, the man doesn't say, "Mm, I'm going to grit my teeth, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to buckle down, I'm going to force myself to do this. No, what does he do? In his joy, he does. He goes and sells everything he has. He goes all in, in his joy. This is a great thing. I am going all in. Why? Because what I'm about to receive is so much better than with the chips I'm pushing in the middle of the table. Because here's a man who knows what's waiting for him if he goes all in. You know, this guy is not saying, wow, look at me, I'm so committed. I'm so good. No, in his joy. It's not a burden. It's not a sacrifice. It's common sense. It's not even heroic. It's just common sense. 
What Jesus is saying is, in your joy, trust me. Follow me. Be 100% committed to me and I will bury you in blessings. If you are willing to, in your joy, give me what you have, I will give you more than you could ever imagine. What does God expect from His people? Well, He wants our heart. He wants our life. He wants us to be 100% committed to Him. Fully committed people serve others. They don't talk about it. They don't brag about it. They just do it. Fully committed people are passionate about their daily worship to God. It really is what defines them. Then fully committed people love to be challenged on a spiritual level. Again, not out of some sense of duty, not because they have to, but because they know the great joy that comes in that journey. You know, this, this morning, I'm just asking you to be completely honest with yourself and with God. What are you really committed to? I mean, really, where's your heart? What keeps you up at night? What are your dreams? What are the things that if it were taken away from you, it would really bother you? You'd get really anxious about it. Where's your heart? Is it more like King Amaziah's? I'm doing the right thing, but reluctantly. Or is it more like the heart of David? Flawed, you bet. Broken, quite often. Desperately in need of, of redemption. But a heart that says, God, I'm all in. I'm all in when it comes to you. I am totally committed and I'm trusting you to treat me like a father who loves me. Where's your heart? Maybe you've never gone all in. Maybe you've never claimed Jesus as the Lord of your life. Today you get another chance to do that. Maybe you have been living your life a little bit like Amaziah. Looks good, but you know your heart's not in it. Travis has a song that we're going to use as a song of encouragement. As a family this morning, if we can help you in any way, meet us down front while we stand and sing.